0: So I went forth and I created the files and you know, off I went to Puerto Rico and the cans came off the press, the client is there and no, sorry, it was a representative from the client was there and they were wrong. They were just wrong.
1: It's Package Design Unboxed, the podcast that discusses everything about packaging. In this episode, we speak with Brandy Parker, head of realization at Pearl Fisher. We discuss production and how those hard-earned lessons in production shape us as professionals. All right, are we good? Let's do it. All right,
0: let's go. Are you guys ready to rock? Let's rock! Uh-huh.
1: Today we're joined by Brandy Parker of Pearl Fisher. Um, someone that I've followed for a long time. She's spoken at the die Line a million times. She's MC'd <laughs> it recently. Um, and she is the head of realization at Pearl Fisher. Brandy, how's it going?
0: Hey, Abilio, thank you so much. I'm very excited to be on your podcast and uh, yeah, excited to be here. So thanks for having me. So
1: anybody out there that's not familiar with Pearl Fisher,
0: what are you guys known for? <laughs> yeah, uh, that's a fantastic question. Um, so to give you sort of the brief, brief history of Pearl Fisher, we were started in London about 27 years ago um, as a group, sort of as an organization. Uh, we're one of the only independently owned brand and design consultancies sort of left. So I think that's pretty significant. And we're most known for packaging design, though we do a lot of touch points in branding, whether it be identity, we're doing a whole lot more um, sort of extensions across the brand experience. You know, you've probably heard a lot of agencies talking about sort of off pack touch points and that kind of thing. So we're sort of really getting into that more and more lately. Um, You know, in terms of the actual work that we're known for, I would say some sort of the top five uh, projects we're known for would be like Seedlip, the world's first non-alcoholic distilled spirit. Um, We're known for a lot of own brand work. So we did a lot of work for Waitrose kind of early days. Um, We've done a lot of work for Target, uh, Market Pantry, um, things like that. We recently just did a rebrand for ShopRites called Bowl and Basket, um, and that's been getting a lot of press for us lately. So yeah, food and beverage um, is pretty much the most ubiquitous thing sort of in our portfolio, but we're working a lot now with technology clients and personal care and cosmetics, and there's a lot that's going to be sort of coming up in the next uh, year or so as we start to release those things. But I would say, you know, we're, we're well set up for packaging.
1: set up for packaging do you have packaging engineers and industrial designers on your team
0: we do have industrial designers on the team um and some of those guys have come in with um, and i say guys because it's a largely male team um they've come in some of them have come in with more engineering sort of backgrounds uh than others but we don't really necessarily have strict engineers on the team i would say if anything our realization team of which i'm head of in new york um, but extending across to London, San Francisco and Copenhagen, um, there's kind of a mixture of backgrounds. Um, so I would say a lot more of the, the realization people probably have more uh, engineering type background where they understand performance of materials and things like that.
1: That's one of the things that's always stuck out to me when, when I've spoken to you is this head of realization. It's a title that completely explains what it is that you do making all these projects come to life uh you know having all these designs actually be realized can you can you tell me a little bit about that team and and how you've grown uh this department
0: yeah sure um you know one of the things that attracted me to pearl fisher because i was a fan of pearl fisher for probably 10 years before i ever joined and i would say in some cases i was slowly making my pathway toward pearl fisher and i think one of the main things that attracted me was that they had not only bothered to elevate the discipline of production, but they had this very cool name for it. So I had this idea that, oh my gosh, if you know, that title must be such a discussion point. And actually it is with a lot of our clients, um, you know, Ooh, what is that? Is that what I think it is? And like you said, it kind of describes what it does. And I think it, it really does. Um, but it's always like, Ooh, that's such a cool title. Um, so, I mean, that's that's one thing that's going for us because I think, you know, otherwise being production director or, you know, head of production or whatever, it's it's one of those terms, production is one of those terms that gets lost in a sea of other things that qualify as being production. Um, and, and I wouldn't go so, so far to say as it's generic, but I would say realization helps elevate it. Um, in terms of, you know, starting the, the department and growing it, Um, When I came on board in New York, I was a team of one. Um, And in the early days of New York, you know, we were also a small studio of about 15 people. And I've been there almost seven years now. And over time have been able to grow the team uh, up to three, which doesn't sound that big. But I think for a lot of our compadres at these other agencies, um, having production team at all, much less having more than a couple of people is, is a pretty... Uh, significant thing. So, you know, pulling in people, even in New York, uh, you know, production is one of those skill sets that um, is almost fallen out of fashion in this weird way. So, it's hard to find young people. It's hard to find junior and mid-level people uh, to come in and bring onto the team. I've managed to do so, but it's it's very difficult to find. Um, You know, there's a lot of senior people out there, and um, quite a lot of them are freelance. So I get the benefit of having seniors on my team, as well as being able to bring in freelance seniors um, ad hoc. Uh, But it's a real mixture of people with backgrounds in strict artworking in terms of packaging. I've got typography and typesetting experts. I've got... Uh, people that come from the corporate identity background. I even had a guy that was um, a professional sort of high-end retoucher for 10 years before he joined my team. So there's like this series of winding roads and backgrounds that really make the, what I like to call the uh, multicolored tapestry of the Realization team, Um, you know, full of variety, full of uh, depth of skills. And I would say the same thing for the London team, um, although I think in the UK, there's much more of an infrastructure set up for people to apprentice and go through this kind of artworking, um, you know, learning on the job situation than there is in the US. Um, but yeah, there's a good diversity of people uh, across the teams in all four studios.
1: Production is not something that people really talk about. Um, you know, it's always the accolades go to the design, but in order to accomplish those designs, you have to be able to to make it happen. Mm-hmm. So your team, how involved do you get at the beginning of each project?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, um, something that I over time sort of working at different agencies have gotten really interested in is is workflow, systems design. Mm-hmm. And it's something I never could have told you as an art major coming out of university that I would ever give a crap about. Um, but systems design and, and therefore workflow design is has become one of those things that actually shapes everything about what we do and how we do it. So you ask about us being involved at the beginning, that's just it, we are. And I would say that is what's missing from so many other people's workflows. You know, it makes sense because what realization production are coming to the project with is creative problem solving from a completely different angle. Um, to give you an example, I was on an immersion with a new client um, doing some sustainable farming of a product I can't really talk about, but mm-hmm. what I was able to interject at that moment of immersion before we ever put pencil to page and design was, oh, you know what I think would be great for this is an algae-based ink and I know this vendor that's making it and let's make sure that when we get to that stage where we're printing stationery, we're printing packaging, that we use that ink and they were so on board and it shaped the way we design and it shaped the way um, that frankly it's going to come out and that's only something I feel in this case would have come from from realization So it's finding those opportunities. It's not just for us to take on and understand the technical parameters. Like, do we know that they're only willing to print flexo? Do we know that they're only doing dry offset and the substrates? Or do we have opportunity to change that or push that? And the other benefit of us being uh, sort of involved at the beginning is we can use that entirety of the timeline Because you and I both know and I'm sure you've you've experienced this in, in, in things you've been involved in Design gets you know, I don't know the biggest slice of the pie right and rightly so to develop the ideas and get get them But then production or realization in this case might have two or three days to artwork files and get them out And if you're looking at a traditional workflow There's no way you could innovate in that timeline two to three days Crossing our fingers, hoping we can toss it over the wall and it'll come out right, is no way to work. But the truth is, is that the time that the client says, I'm approving this design, and when they expect it to go to print, is this very short timeline. So while we know we cannot change that, what we can change is how we work. So by being involved at the beginning, we get that benefit of parallel pathing with design. And maybe I'm on the phone with the printers, while the designers are actually still in explore phase, and I'm saying, hey... Printer X. I'm seeing the designers kind of doing this kind of thing in their concept. Is that something you've ever done? Have you ever done a double foil stamp? Have you ever done an overprint on a foil, you know, things like that? And we start having that conversation before we're even looking at visuals. Um, And then if they say no, then maybe I'm on the hunt for a print vendor that I know or have worked with before that I know could do it. And I present that at the time we present the concept. Um, So so it's a lot of things, right? Being involved and being immersed in the project as much as the designers means that we can add as much value as we're allowed to. Um, so whether that's understanding the technical parameters, pushing them, finding innovations, interjecting new vendors, um, building timelines uh, to accommodate maybe something new that we're trying, or frankly, uh, just pushing pushing the design and and. and doing the, the due diligence to understand whether it can be produced or not. Because one of the things we pride ourselves in is at the very beginning, we're not going to present to you any designs that we don't know can be done. And if for some reason at that moment, if we don't know, we'll tell the client, Hey, we're pushing it a little far on this concept. We're not sure if it could be done, but give us some time. We know what we need to ask and who we need to ask. We'll get back to you. And transparency like that is always better.
1: Can you explain a little bit more about what you mean by, by pushing the design from a production standpoint?
0: Sure. You know, I think um, what is missing from design education today, and I've seen it because I've, I've been an adjunct instructor myself, um, is designers, you know, they're, they're being taught the fundamentals of design, composition, color, type, all that good stuff, which is very important. But few of them are being taught how ink actually works, how it interacts with substrate, how different press types work and how that affects what you can, what you can do with your design. Um, so if we wanna push to the design, right, then we wanna understand better how it will be produced so we know what our levers are. So for example, if I know we're going to be doing a design for a beverage And it's going to be on an aluminum can then what i can tell that designer is it's going to be dry offset and it's going to be a maximum of six colors there's no moving that the only thing that moves that is if the client can't pay for all six colors
1: and do lots of gradients
0: right no gradients color (laughs) all that good stuff right but if a designer that doesn't understand that starts designing and they put a bunch of gradients in a bunch of photography, Uh, then they're going to end up having to dumb down the design at a really inopportune moment and have something that comes out that is not anything like what they wanted or expected. Whereas if we build that into the process and the problem solving, then we can push the design to the strength of the medium, meaning that we can design to the problem we're solving very specifically and make it the best it can be on that substrate in, in that scenario I would say another um, way that you know designers that understand production can push design is also knowing what what sort of crayons they have in the box meaning they know that yeah I can hot stamp or I can cold stamp here's the difference and here's the benefit in the in the uh, sort of the benefit of both um, you know, or, oh, this doesn't have to be a board. I can make it, uh, you know, a flexible stand-up pouch or, you know, any number of things. I think it's it's all about knowing what tools you have in your arsenal and what crayons you have um, in your sort of stack, if you will, in your box of crayons. Because um, I don't think you can really push the envelope if you don't understand the envelope.
1: Is it merely experience? that allows you then to understand that envelope?
0: Mm. That's an interesting question. I mean, I would say largely, yes, I think experience is, is so much of that. Um, But I think it's also mentors, you know, young designers that come into agencies that get mentored right away, whether by senior designers, um, knowledgeable, you know, design directors, ACDs, etc. Um, into production so production folks on the team that aren't just you know miserable grumpy people sitting in the back of the room saying no to everything <laughs> you know if, if there's someone on that team that's willing to mentor the young designers to bring them up into their sort of world I think that's a huge powerful thing too you know the designers I've spoken to the designers I've taught um, some of them have taken me up on being interns so I've actually had the privilege of Having some realization interns come in so you know people fresh out of design school wanting to kind of try try it out. Um, you know I've also recommended that some designers go and do an apprenticeship program at a local print shop or you know uh, you know similar experience where maybe they're doing a summer job at a print shop or something like that. There's no better way to understand the sort of behind the scenes nuts nuts and bolts of a process than actually seeing it in in action.
1: You know, it's just really important to just open up that opportunity for for young designers or, or you know even mid-level designers that are interested in, in making a shift I personally spent a few years working at a printer early on
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, I remember the the owner of of the print shop was like you, know, you can make a career just by understanding paper
0: um, oh yeah you know, it's like
1: you know and it was the same thing with ink and it's like all these different things you can you can niche down so far within all the different processes within production uh, but it's incredible. So it just makes you yeah. a, a stronger designer that way.
0: You know what? You you bring up a really good point, which is, is the paper bit. And that uh, reminds me that part of what's helped me learn in my job, too, is having fantastic representatives from these different companies. So whether it's a paper company, whether it's an ink company... You know, I have all kinds of people calling on me now because I'm rel- relatively well-known at this point. So people, you know, vendors call me and pitch stuff. But at first, um, it was almost like I was cold calling vendors and being like, okay, if I had this uncoated paper, how would that soak up the ink compared to this other thing? And how can you tell me more about the performance on an offset press, that kind of stuff. And having reps willing to sit down with you and actually talk you through a project or talk through stuff like that has been a tremendous help to me and and young designers so i would encourage you know all the young designers out there to make friends with with your paper reps you know make friends with your your press and uh print partners because they're actually willing to tell you a lot it just makes their job easier
1: no that's a, that's a great point point. and a lot of the you know whether it's pressmen or bindery people i mean they've got so much experience doing what they're doing that they have so much so much to share um on the material side so even just digging further in on the paper, uh, have there been projects that you've worked on where um, maybe you've had to develop a, a custom paper or a, a custom pulp?
0: Yeah, you know, we have come so close so many times. Um, I think the biggest barrier to actually doing it comes down to cost and volume. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and some of these paper companies are making it sort of more approachable to be able to to get something custom through the mill. Um, But the reality is is you've got to get pallets of paper to make that work. Um, I would say the closest is when we were working on some whiskey labels for a brand um, and we had this brilliant idea to use some of the the brewing waste or the distilling waste as part of the paper and it was going to work. They tested it, um, but it it really just came down to volume and we just couldn't hit that volume. So um, it's one of those things that, I think people should always be striving for because I think paper in some cases, especially with labeling, is like the last thing designers think about. I'm not speaking for Pearl Fisher here because I think we're really good at considering all that all the time. But, you know, a lot of other agencies that are maybe focused on graphics primarily um, and, you know, whatever, that's their strength and that's great. It's not a bad thing um paper kind of comes last as a consideration i think it's such a good way to to create something ownable for a brand um so if you can meet the minimums and meet the volume i think it's it's definitely a cool thing to do
1: some of the spirits uh, packaging that you guys have worked on you know some of the glass bottles how involved are you in the production on, on some of those things oh, yeah. so we've talked about paper and you you've got paper nailed down and you know plastics as well and then we're talking about glass so you have all these different materials yeah that seem to be all in your all in your wheelhouse
0: yeah you know that's been the wonderful thing about being in this industry and why i'm still so psyched about this job so many years later um is all of the materials all the press types all of the variables that we get to work with on a day-to-day basis it's not just the 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 variety of projects it's the variety of, of outputs right um, so glass you know that's a big one that um, early on in my career I got very interested in um, and frankly I think I could have done my entire entire career without knowing anything about glass because I think the expectation is quite low for the agency to know much um, but my own and personal um interest and curiosity has led me to get really involved so the way it works with us is a lot like the graphics workflow so if we're doing a structural design then i'm connecting with the structural team in the same way that i'm connecting with the graphics team like okay here are our technical parameters this is the kind of line it's going to go on it's a high speed line with fully automatic application here are the limitations of designing the bottle here are the sort of the pros and the cons, if you will, you know, whether something's being applied automatically or manually. um, And I'm talking about the labels here that actually greatly affects how you're going to design that glass. And, and, and a lot of people may not think about that, but asking crucial questions at the beginning of a project, like, let me see your line. If I can't see it because of COVID, then tell me about it. You know, are you putting anything on there by hand? Are you doing it all automatically? Because then that, that dictates a lot. And then just knowing the limitations of glass, like what kind of angles you can put in glass, what kind of radii you need to allow for on the corners, uh, fill lines, stuff like that, is things that, you know, I need to be in the know so that I can guide the team. And a lot and like I said, a lot of our structural designers are so talented. They they know they come with a lot of that knowledge. So it's less about me guiding that way and more about guiding them in the way that it, it will all be put together in the end. Um, so, yeah, so I kind of work alongside them the way I work alongside the graphics team. So, you know, I'm checking in with the glass manufacturer. Um, we're doing sort of over the shoulder kind of reviews of concepts. We're verifying as we go. And then when it's time to send them the preliminary CAD so they can engineer it and send it back to us, then I'm very involved in that file transfer and that, that effort. And I'm reading the blueprints and I'm sort of feeding back to the teams so realization gets to be as, pretty much as involved as we want to. But it's one of the things that I love most about the job is getting to do that stuff.
1: Is that part of the that early slew thing? For example, where you're, where you're talking to the production line, what kind of lines are they running? You know, What kind of labels? What kind of adhesives? And you're pulling all that information together and providing that early on uh, pre-concept yeah. or...
0: That's correct. Yeah. I mean, if we can get all that information before we start concepting, which is ideal, um, then I'm able to sort of compile it into what we call a technical brief for the team. And I create technical briefs, uh, both for structure teams and for the graphics teams. Um, And if we have all the information together, I'll create one technical brief that covers all of it. And so that the team kind of has this very clear idea of where they're headed uh, from the very beginning. And, you know, I try not to treat a technical brief like here's all your parameters here's basically where you can't go Um, it's more like we treat um, limitations as opportunities and again how do we design against um, some of these limitations and bring forth the best expression of a thing uh, sort of the best version of itself in the in the medium and in the given um, materials that we're working with um, and you know, over time I've been able to bring the design teams along with me on that. Cause at first, you know, I think working a different way, cause what I've done is I brought in this workflow right to this team and there was, you know, designers already there. So kind of getting them on the same page as me, but also seeing mm-hmm. over time, you know, bringing them on that journey, seeing how it actually means that they get off the press or off the line in the case of Glass, exactly what they expected um, has encouraged them to sort of come along with me and see, like, okay, there is method to the madness, and it's not just about saying what we can and can't do.
1: I can definitely appreciate that. I think what's most exciting for me has been just setting parameters uh, and really tight parameters on what is and what isn't possible, and then just doing pulling all the stops within within be a lot more creative once you've got.
0: yeah exactly
1: otherwise yeah you don't know what you don't know where to stop
0: yeah yeah and you know i the way i put it to my students when i'm teaching them is have you ever been given a brief that was basically a blank slate and if so how did your sort of concepting and process differ than when you were given at least one or two bits of guidance or restrictions and unanimously inevitably all of the students say actually yeah given a few limitations it's easier it's easier to get started a blank slate is almost paralyzing um so i like to think that tech brief serves the same purpose
1: I know early early on uh, in in my career even just when i was working at that at that printer cutting paper learning about fiber direction learning about grain direction
0: um,
1: I, I had a I had a palette of paper to cut, and the top sheet was in the wrong in the wrong orientation, and I cut the whole stack. Oh, everything got printed. Everything got went through the bindery. Every single fold cracked, and it was my fault. The owner of the of the print shop, you know, this was like twenty years ago. The owner of the print shop was like, "All right, you've got to deliver that. You've got to <laughs> deliver that project, and explain to them what happened." And it's a lesson that I've, I'll never forget um you know i know early on just we talk about experience and, and everything on the mm-hmm. production side but you know what are those lessons that you i guess those hard-earned <laughs> lessons that you'll never forget <laughs> oh never
0: man i you know what i really love this question um because you know it exposes all of us as human doesn't it but what i think is great about those experiences like like you're saying which is oh that hurts me to think about um is that you, you, it's true. You never forget Like that is something you will never forget in the, in, in, you know, the rest of your career. So I guess for me, you know, a lot of those big bloopers came as I started off because that's when you make those mistakes. Right. Um, and I say, I would say the, the, the most significant one, um, is a can printing incident. It's why I talk about aluminum can printing a lot because it's so scarred uh, in my brain. Um, so the story goes that I was working at the first agency that I was working for um, shortly after I moved to New York, which would have been the early 2000s. Um, and first packaging agency, I should qualify. Um, so I was working for the first packaging agency and um, I was doing really well. I was a junior production artist and um, you know things were going along pretty well. I had an awesome boss. And she was like, hey, I have an opportunity to send you to Puerto Rico for a press run uh, for this can project we were working on. It was a big redesign for a, um, a beer um, based in the, in the Caribbean. So I was like, oh, yeah, awesome. I'm ready to go. And she's like, okay, we'll make sure you ask all your questions. You get everything before you go. Um, as you're making the files, make sure you understand everything that's going on. Here's some things to remember, et cetera, et cetera. So I went forth and I created the files and, you know, off I went to Puerto Rico and the cans came off the press. The client is there and no, sorry. It was a representative from the client was there and they were wrong. They were just wrong. Now, nothing was wrong with the copy. None, nothing was wrong with sort of the positioning of things. Cause all of that had been proofed and approved but the colors were wrong. Um, and one of the biggest mistakes I made was assuming that the colors could touch, that you could overprint silver and get um, things. So like, for example, we had done uh, paper, uh, metallicized metal- paper labels, where we had overprinted this light orange to create a gold color on the bottle labels. So I had just simply translated that technique over into the cans Well, what I got was bright orange where there could be gold. And the problem was, is that color was being used across many elements doing different jobs. So in some areas it was creating a gold and in some areas it was meant to stay orange and create a kind of warmth um, around uh, the artwork. So we got this bright orange can and it was a disaster. And I was like, oh my God. And there was a language barrier. Um, a lot of the pressmen were really amazing, but I didn't speak great Spanish and they didn't speak great English. So we had a little bit of an issue. Um, and I had to think on my feet and this was a production run. This wasn't a print test. This was a production run. So, so there's this cranking and the client rep doesn't know anything about printing. They're like, Oh my God, it's orange. Like, what are we going to do? So, I called, I had to call the client. Well, first, I call my boss and I'm freaking out. And she's like, calm down. Like, you got this. You know, call them and talk through some of the options that you see as solutions. So, I was like, okay. So, I called the client and I'm like, all right, we can replace the color with a gold. But then, some of the areas of the artwork that are supposed to look orange are going to be gold. If we keep it orange, it's going to be bright orange. So, that's not going to work. So we have this conversation with the client and finally, it it became pretty clear that we needed to stop the press run um, because the artwork just wasn't going to work with a a, sort of an ad hoc solution and they couldn't re burn plates there or anything. So I had to make this crazy decision to pull the run. um, And then they had to basically reschedule it. And I had to have time to fly back to New York, correct the artwork, and resubmit it. So it was a big, big, you know, mess up, as, as you would say. And I learned so much from that because what I hadn't done is ask all the right questions. What I hadn't done, in, and clearly the client needed a lot of handholding and was relying on the agency to sort of guide them through the process. So we could have done things like demand drawdowns, for example, which we would have seen the orange would have been wrong before we ever got to the press run. And you know, just level setting, maybe even with a wet proof or something like this. So yeah, I learned a lot from that 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 run. And thankfully, the client didn't fire us, but they weren't very happy.
1: That's the lesson I think for designers looking to get into production or working with production is, you know, when you're when you're starting out, you're going to yeah. screw up. Right? We all do. Um, it's just you know, what what do you learn That's from that? Exactly. And when you're working with some with an experienced, you know, whether it's your your pressman or uh, you know, whoever it is down the line in your production, when they tell you you need to ask these questions or they tell you this is not possible for these reasons, it's because of that experience. So that's why it's so important, I think, to to stay connected with with everybody in that in that line. You're
0: totally right. And and it's such an important thing to know. You know, when I when I tell my students, when I tell, you know, the young juniors that come in, I tell them this that exact thing. I say, look, you are going to make a big mistake. So just be OK with that now. But the most important thing is that you learn something from it and don't do it twice. Like I'm all you know, it's all good for people on my team to make mistakes. It happens. We're human. It's fine. But what I don't want to see is the same mistake twice because that means you're not learning. Um So it's kind of this acceptance like, okay, I am going to mess up at some point, but also knowing, you know, there's benefit of that in that
1: being on the production side, on the realization side, you know, working with all the different partners and being so involved in in the manufacturing, does that lend itself to allowing you to introduce more sustainable options to clients uh, and just because of the research that you're doing?
0: Yeah, I mean, I kind of almost insert myself into it, right? because I'm so greedy for the knowledge at the, at the beginning, it, it positions me, um, in in such a way that I can come back and go, okay, well, have we thought about switching your label paper to this? Mm -hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I, it thrills me to be able to kind of ask about sustainability, um, or at least push options because the thing is, is that especially in the United States, um, A big percentage of the time, if you ask a marketing person, where is sustainability on your list of priorities? They'll tell you it's pretty high, but then when you get, it's always top three, three but when you get to the end of the project, cash is king and they don't want to spend that extra cash. So it suddenly falls off the priority list altogether. So the best thing is to try to integrate the idea of it as soon in the process as possible. So that it becomes um, almost part of the the canon, part of the lexicon of the project. So that by the time you get to the end, if it's going to cost more, hopefully all of the stakeholders have bought in so much to what you're doing with that sustainable material that it becomes a non-issue. But I would love to tell you that I'm successful most of the time, but I'm not. You know, sustainability is still a very difficult thing to work in. Um, and I, got, I, you know, I would say even harder in these times of, of COVID and the pandemic, um, people are really just trying to keep status quo, and I, and I get it. But we really, as an industry, do have to, to start making those sacrifices and pushing sustainability wherever we can. And, and then that includes from the client side, too.
1: But what do you see happening after, after COVID? What's, what's the future? Yeah,
0: that's future? a great question i think that health and sanitation are going to be more top of mind for people as a part of the sustainability equation where it hasn't been before so i would say existing in this pandemic has forced us to realize that health of humans and planet are pretty high up in the sustainability sort of consideration set so i think that will change the way we look at packaging for sure um you know and the and the the crisis around plastics is, is such a difficult one. The thing is, is that there's so many reasons why we can't live with it and can't live without it right now. Um, and so for me, it's keeping tabs on the scientists and the universities that are developing technologies that are pushing us beyond either beyond plastics or with dealing with plastics in a, in a better way. Um because we're just not, we're not technologically there yet to be able to either do with them or do without them, if that makes sense. Um, Yeah. yeah. Um, I also think that the future of packaging doesn't hinge on a broken recycling system. Um, I think that, and there's there's been a couple of really great articles recently on FASCO, this author Don Norman has been writing a lot about the complexity of recycling, and he's a systems expert, um, which is fascinating. Um, And he's done a two-part series on both the problems with recycling and also maybe some ideas on how we might go about starting to fix it. And that's a a big one for me because a lot of, um, well, there's a lot of organizations, there's a lot of um, even some of our clients that are putting all their eggs um, there's sustainability eggs in the recycling basket. And I think that there's just a lot of reasons why that's maybe not the right answer um, for the future. You know, I, I yeah. the way that we've sort of written our own manifesto of sustainability, we've called it lightweighting. and And the way that we're looking at solutions there is on either end of a spectrum, can we work with and produce materials that degrade on their own. So whether that's through biodegradability, compostability, et cetera, or on the other end of the spectrum, uh, materials that are actually designed to stick around, designed to be reused, designed to be um, durable and last a lifetime or more. Um, And actually where in that spectrum, uh, you know, can we put our solutions? And I would argue that while recyclability and recycling can fit on that spectrum, it is only one sort of shade of color uh, against all these other shade of colors of possibilities um, with solutions that don't re- necessarily rely on it, because it is a broken system. I mean, there's news. Uh, I read an article just the other day about the UK. Um, they're discontinuing recycling a lot of different materials because of the market values is plummeted. Um, you know, the thing just happened in California. I guess probably six months ago where a whole chain of recycling centers uh, closed because of mismanagement of funds. Um, You know, the basis of the system is a privately owned capitalistic system, um, which if you ask me, recycling is, it really should be a nonprofit um, sort of government run system um, to both keep the standards and also make sure that things aren't just being recycled or not based on its current market value, that it's all about the interest of the health of the planet. But obviously that's like, that's super optimistic. Yeah. And that's very like utopian. <laughs> and I know how unrealistic that is. So that just, that's what pushes me to try to find um, solutions beyond recycling. And I think TerraCycle, um, you know, you just spoke to um, Suzaki the other day. Right. And uh, yeah, You know, he's been doing an amazing, you know, job with starting and recycling and recycling unrecyclable materials, which is so cool, to loop, which is all about reuse and and what I've been talking about, that durability of goods, Um, because there are solutions outside of the recycling system, because he he knows that it's broken. You know, that's what he's been trying to fix. Um, uh, So, yeah, yeah, I, I think the future of sustainability depends on other solutions
1: just having you know as we're kind of wrapping up here but just having done this this podcast for a little bit now uh, i spoke to uh, this gentleman bo peck who's in salt lake he's he's a recycler there and they do a closed lid system and you know when i design something i always design it for the recycling system that i know but speaking to uh, bo in salt lake He works with a lot of small rural areas and people actually will wash their recyclables. They will, you know, separate them and then they will drive them to a recycling center. And he's like, this is the way a lot of recycling happens. And, you know, by doing it this way, people are more conscious of what they're recycling, you know, because they're going to wash it and they don't want to drive it. Uh, So people are are really paying attention to that. And it it was a system, to be honest, I wasn't familiar with. Um, so, as a designer, you know, one of the things that Tom, that, that Tom did say was when you're doing research for sustainability, it's like just call a lot of recycling centers in just different areas because your product's going to be sold any, everywhere and you don't know where it's going to end up being recycled. Just because I can, I've can, got curbside doesn't mean I design.
0: Yeah. You know, and that's such an important point, right? And And why it's so difficult to design for it because there are so many different systems and different standards. Um, Yeah, I mean, I'm in South Arkansas right now. I I normally obviously live in New York, but um, this little community here has the same system. My parents have been avid recyclers since I was in high school. And they drive, once my dad's pickup truck gets filled up, they drive it to the local center. And back in the day, the motivation was that the recycling center sort of attendant would be able to hand you cash in hand based on the weight of the stuff that you brought in. That is, of course, not the case anymore. It, yeah. uh, that went away a long time ago, so people just drop it off in good faith. But it's fascinating to me that people are still motivated to get in the car and drive it. That's pretty phenomenal.
1: Randy, I wanna thank you so much for spending all this time with me, um, talking about everything from realization, production, manufacturing, and sustainability. What's the best place for people to connect with you? Well, yeah,
0: thank you me? so much, and um, yeah, I've really enjoyed it talking about. I could just walk on all day about all these things. So thanks for giving me the platform to do it. <laughs> um, in terms of the best place to get me, um, probably right now the best place to get me is LinkedIn. Um, so you can just search Brandy B R A N D I uh, Parker and um, Pearl Fisher. I'll
1: have links. There you I'll go. Have links
0: Even links um, so that's probably the best place, and I'm always happy to help out a student or uh, somebody just entering the industry. So yeah, please reach out, ask questions. That'd be great.
1: Awesome, I'll do. Once again, uh, thank
0: you, man. Brandy, thank Have you a so great much. rest of your day.
1: Learn more about Brandy's work on pearlfisher.com, and catch up on her latest articles available on the dialon. Thank you once again to Brandy for being on. And thanks to you for listening. Talk soon.